You remember last week, as we started uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, where uh, Paul says to live is Christ uh, and to die is gain. And we looked at the reality of life, joy in real life. And we said that that was part one. Uh, joy in real life in light of suffering, because suffering is a part of real life. Well, tonight we want to look um, the latter half of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, uh, still in still talking about real life. Remember, Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. And tonight he wants to apply that to us. He said that about himself, but now he wants to tell us what he hopes that looks like in our lives. For those of us who claim Christ, who are united with Christ, okay? So let's read this together. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I can't remember if it was the first freshman Bible study or not, uh, but our icebreaker question at, at freshman Bible study a couple weeks ago was, what's the worst lie that you've ever believed? And we weren't looking for like deep, dark secrets. We were looking for like a funny story of a time you were gullible, right? And we got some, we got some great answers. I'll give uh, our great intern, Ward, where are you, where are you, Ward? We'll get, I'll give Wards as an example. Wards was, he had this goldfish when he was little. Um, and it see, he seemed to last a long time. Uh, but finally, he, he did go the way of upside down fishes. And they had a little toilet funeral for him and flushed him away. Um, and Ward said goodbye to his goldfish. Only to find out sometime later, years later. I yeah, and he was in college before. His parents told him that actually he would probably had about 8 to 10 goldfish. Um, <laughs> Every time one died, they would just replace it without telling him. And they finally got tired of that and told him it died. So that was a good one. But beside the point, I, think, I want to mention the realest answer I think we got that day. And it was from Walker Thames. Where's Walker? Walker Thames right here from Buford, Georgia, ladies and gentlemen. Um, tall and handsome. Um, but he said this. He said, I guess my parents always told me the truth about everything. And then he said, I guess that's why I'm pretty cynical about life. (laughs) And I really loved that answer because he won. He was being honest. And it was it's the truth, isn't it? When you know the truth behind everything, 
It, it can lead to cynicism because when you know the truth behind everything, nothing is ever as good as it may seem. You know that there's probably something else that makes it not so great. We've said as we've opened this book of Philippians together and as we're going to continue going through it, that this recurring theme in this letter is one of joy. That there is a joy Paul has that he has found in the gospel that we should have and he urges us to have. A joy that permeates all of life. That is not determined or affected by our circumstances. Uh, Or as we saw last week, it's not determined or affected by real life. Because there are things in real life that we can look at and we can say, that's not so joyful. But there is a joy that actually goes deeper than that. That is actually beneath it. Uh, Because real life though... It comes with twists, it comes with turns, it comes with bumps, it comes with bruises. And so it can be easy uh, to look at life and be cynical about it and be cynical about something like a joy that, that somebody's telling us pierces through all of this, that goes underneath all of this, that fills every, every area of life, even the hard or dark parts. But I want you to remember, just by way of context, what Paul has already told us in chapter 1. One, he's in prison. But you remember when he told us he was in prison, he said, but the whole imperial guard knows about Jesus now. Like, oh, wow. Okay. Then he says, and there's people in the church preaching the same gospel, the real gospel, who are actually taking advantage of me being in prison because they think it's going to help their own ministries. But hey, it's no sweat because, hey, at the end of the day, Christ is proclaimed, Paul said. And then what he talked about, the the latter verses we focused on last time, was death was a very real possibility for him. As he's chained to soldiers, he's in prison, every time the door opens could be the last time. He could be marched out and crucified, which history tells us eventually happened to him. But he says, even in light of that, either way, Christ will be honored in my body. Paul is living and believing in a joy that goes beneath, that's more foundational than anything else in his life. Out of the gate, he was bursting with this joy, especially as he had affection towards the Philippians. But then he quickly reminds us, look guys, I know what real life is like. That things don't always go the way that we want them to, but my joy is still real and it's still there. And he's going to remind us this again tonight as we look at this. So tonight is part two of having joy in real life. Worthy living. The gospel is great. Jesus is great. Joy is real. But what about actually living this real life? Well, Paul wants to tell us, tell us two things. And I actually borrow these things from my former pastor, seminary professor, and friend, Dr. Derek Thomas. Two things here. How do we enjoy this joy in real life? How do we live worthily? Put the gospel first, put yourself last. That's what I think we can break down what Paul says here. Put the gospel first and put yourself last. So let's look at the first one here. Put the gospel first. And there's actually three ways that Paul tells us that. It starts in verse 27. How do we put, if we're going to live worthily, live a manner of life worthy of the gospel, do it in three ways. The first one he says there is verse 27. Stand firm. Stand firm. So if I'm going to put the gospel first in my life, I first have to know who I am. That's what he's saying. Putting the gospel first with regards to who you are, where your identity is from. Now look again. Look what he says there in verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That almost sounds odd to us, doesn't it? Because it seems almost counter to the gospel that we're supposed to do something to make us worthy. But we, if we know the gospel, we know that it cannot mean... 
how you live will earn more gospel. We, it, that that's, doesn't make sense. That would be oxymoronic. Um, he summed it this, we summed it this way when we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, his prayer for them. He's telling them, be who you are in Christ. Live as you are. Be who you are. Find your identity in who you are in Christ. The Greek there in verse 27 literally reads, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now that doesn't do much for us, but that would have been an apt illustration for the Philippians because Philippi, though far away from Rome, was a, uh, was, a co- was a colony of Rome. So they had colonial status. So if you were a Philippian, you were also a Roman citizen. And so even though they don't live in real Rome, they live in like a miniature version of Rome, they enjoy Roman privileges as Roman citizens. <clears throat> Paul himself was actually a Roman citizen as well. And if you go back and look at the time when he was in Philippi in Acts 16, he actually invokes this, that he's a citizen because a bunch of people get mad that he's preaching the gospel and they start beating him. And then they take him to the city magistrates who are like, yeah, we'll help you beat him. And then they throw him in jail. And then later, after the miracle and all his chains fell off and everything, they come and they want to secretly let him out of prison. And you know what Paul says? He says, they're not going to let us secretly out of prison. They beat and threw in prison Roman citizens without a trial. And we're told that when the magistrates heard that they were Roman citizens, they were afraid. Right? When you're a Roman citizen, you get Roman privileges, legal in that sense. So applying this to living as a citizen worthy of the gospel, putting the gospel first, first means knowing who you are, And standing firm in it. Knowing who you are and standing firm in it. That's what he's saying. Stand firm. Be who you are. Know who you are and be who you are. Now let's just take this idea of standing firm. If I told you to stand firm, just in general, what would be an important question? The important question would be, well, stand firm on what? Right? So if, I, if we go to the Sanderson and I tell you to stand firm on an inflatable in the middle of the pool, okay, you can try all you want, but it might be a little shaky. Am I right? But however, if I tell you to stand firm on the concrete sidewalk next to the pool, it's a little different. It's a different ball game. So the question is, and, and I think Paul would agree with this, the question isn't what will you stand on? The question is, what are you standing on? Because we're all standing on something. We're all standing firm on something. We're all standing on something at the end of every day to tell us who we are. We all have something that we're standing on that we think makes us us. It may be our looks. It may be our personality. It may be the jokes we tell. It may be the grades I make. You can name it. It can be anything. We're all standing on something. There's an article I came across called Controlling the Unpredictable where the author takes up this idea of what we find our identity in. And he says it like this. Some people ask who they are and they expect their feelings to tell them. But feelings are flickering flames that fade after every fitful stimulus. Some people ask who they are and they expect their achievements to tell them. But the things that we accomplish always leave a core of character unrevealed. Some people ask who they are and expect visions of their ideal self to tell them. But our visions of our ideal selves can only tell us what we want to be, not who we are. 
We're all looking to something. We're all standing on something to tell us who we are. And if we're going to put the gospel first, Paul tells us, we have to know who we are in Christ. And we have to stand firm in it. Knowing that we are saved by grace through faith. And that this is not of our own doing, but the gift of God, he says in Ephesians chapter 2. We have to know that we are not our own, for we have been bought with a price. That is who we are. If you understand that is who you are, it begins to affect everything in your life. Do you know who you are, and are you standing firm in it? That's the first question Paul wants to ask us. We can understand this more by moving on. Let's continue. The second thing he says, to put the gospel first in our life, it involves striving. Now, put that together in your head. Putting the gospel first involves, to some degree, in some sense, striving. So, putting the gospel first means you need to know who you are and stand firm in it. But then, logically, it flows, right? If you know who you are, you then know what to do. And Paul says the Christian life, putting the gospel first, leads to striving, It's an activity. There's an active nature to the Christian life. There's an active pursuing of something. We'll see this so clear in Philippians chapter 3. It's so hard, by the way, as we go in the series, not to jump ahead of myself because there's so much good in this letter. So come back every week and you'll get more and more. It's great. Anyway, self-advertisement. It's fine. And again, though, we might think, isn't this the opposite of the gospel? Isn't this gospel about the Jesus who said, Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Yes, it is. But it's also the same Jesus that says, Those who love me, obey my commandments. Do you know Jesus said that? There's a doing. There's an active doing. There's an activity in the Christian life when we put the gospel first. The gospel, which is about something done for us, Okay, When we believe it, when we take it in, it does something in us. And when it does something in us, it flows out from us into what we do. Know who you are and stand firm in it and strive towards the things of the gospel, he says here in verse 27. So it's funny, I had an illustration actually about transferring to Ole Miss that I scratched out. Now I feel like i got to do it to redeem myself from that horrible picture. But I don't want to go there. Um, let me go instead. I want to, to drive this home about striving, gospel striving. What, what in the world would that look like? I, I want to give you a case of two contrasts. The first is Jean Valjean. I'm three sermons into this series, and I'm already the second time in Les Mis. I'm sorry. But Jean Valjean, right, this amazing character... He's the main character of Les Mis in a a wide array of great characters. But his story is that he's imprisoned and he finally gets out of prison. But in that day, when you got out of prison, you had a letter. You had had your identity papers that you carried around with you said that you were an ex-convict. And so it was hard for you to get work or really do anything anywhere because nobody wanted convicts in their villages or their towns. And so he finally finds himself, he's, he's starved and he's, he's at his wit's end and he ends up sleeping inside of a church and a priest takes him in. And he cannot get his eyes off of the silver. And though the priest has taken him in, has taken care of him, has given him food, has helped him get on his way, he cannot help but steal the silver. 
Priest doesn't even know he's left and stolen the silver, but he wakes up to the, to the police bringing Jean Valjean back, right, with the silver, saying, uh, you know, Father, this man must have stolen your silver. And Jean Valjean knows it's over for him at that point. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But the priest in that moment says, no, he didn't steal it. I gave it to him. And the whole point of the story, of Jean Valjean's story, is he was never the same after that. The priest didn't demand anything of him, right? The priest didn't tell him, you need to pay me back for this. He covered for him and then said, take it. Take it. Your life has been redeemed for God, the song goes in the musical. I have to bring the musical into it. Now take that, there's a contrast story to that. Saving Private Ryan, if you've ever seen this movie. Saving Private Ryan, a great World War II movie where this guy, Private Ryan, basically, the United States uh, government sends a special force, basically, into Europe, past enemy lines, to find Private Ryan because his three brothers have passed away in the war and they don't want him, the last remaining son of these parents, to die as well. And so they send this special force to get him so they can send him home so this family doesn't have to grieve another lost son. At the end of the movie, Tom Hanks is the the guy that leads the special force to find Private Ryan. Uh, They get in a battle, and Tom Hanks is mortally wounded. And before he dies, he grabs Private Ryan and he says to him, Earn this. You feel the weight of that, right? Earn the fact that these men gave their lives coming to find you so you could go home. The end of the movie, it flashes forward to Private Ryan. He's an old man. He's with his family, his children, and his grandparents in uh, Arlington Seminary. Cemetery. Seminary would have been weird. (laughs) And they find the grave of Tom Hanks' character. And he goes and he kneels down by it. Obviously, he's overcome with emotion. And his wife comes over to see if he's okay. And he looks at her and he says, Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. Now, I want, to, I want you to think about those two stories. Both men striving out of something that was done for them that they didn't deserve. But at the same time, both of them striving from completely different places. One pursued the rest of his life to live out of the free grace the priest had bestowed on him and to pay it forward to others. Because it changed him. The other was told he had to earn it. You see which one's the gospel one, right? Putting the gospel first means the gospel powers and empowers and informs what you do. And here's the scary part. It informs that in every sphere of your life. There's not one area of your life where you do something that the gospel is not supposed to inform it. This is the part we have, a, we have a hard time with, right? Because it, So it means that the gospel is not something that only applies when we're in a religious setting. A worship night or a campus ministry or church. No, every sphere of life. It means the gospel applies to my ambition. How hard am I going to work? What can I achieve? Can I give myself a break? Can I let myself rest? How are you going to answer these questions? If the gospel is true, I can say I can work hard to achieve things. And I can work hard to enjoy the things that I achieve because God has gifted me with them. But at the same time, if the gospel is true, I can also not take those things too seriously because those things don't define me. What Jesus has done defines me. 
putting the gospel first also applies to my social life. Who am I going to be friends with? Who will I get to know? Who will I spend time to get to know? Who will I spend time or allow to get to know me? In Jesus, the gospel tells me I'm united with people that aren't like me. So I should be pursuing people that aren't like me. In Jesus, the gospel tells me I am perfectly loved. So I actually don't have to look to other people to give me that. In Jesus, the gospel tells me not only am I perfectly loved, but I'm perfectly known already. I really can let other people get to know me. As scary as that might feel. In Jesus, the gospel tells me I want to love the things that he loves. I want to surround myself with people who love what he loves. And I might have to say no to the people who don't. It applies to what I do with my body. Ever thought about that? The gospel applies to what you do with your body. Do you remember back earlier in Philippians 1 and and verse 20? He's talking about, look, I don't know if I'm going to die or whether I'm going to live. And he says, but I know whichever one happens, Christ will be honored in my body. Isn't that odd? Wouldn't you have thought he would have said, whether I live or die, he'll be honored in my legacy. Or in my ministry. Or in my preaching. Or in my writing. He doesn't say that. He says, whether I die or live, Christ will be honored in my body. What you do with your body matters. Even according to the gospel. Should I abuse my body with alcohol? You know that's what the headache's telling you, right? It's telling you this isn't good. Stop doing it. It's not just to like, hey, wake up today. That's not what it's doing. Should I abuse my body with food? Whether by withholding it or binging it. Should I abuse my body by giving it to someone who's not my spouse? What you do with your body matters. Putting the gospel first means that it informs and empowers what we do in this life, in every sphere of life, every area of life. Third thing he says here about putting the gospel first, finally, is don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Verse 28. Now, it's easy for us to gloss over this right here where he talks about not being frightened in the face of opposition. Because this is the way I think of it. We're in America. And look, I don't care. We can talk about this, but we really haven't faced much opposition. We live in pretty white, happy Christian lives, most of us. But I don't want you to gloss over this because this is what we've got to remember. The the testimony of the New Testament says this repeatedly. Putting the gospel first in your life puts you in opposition to the world around you. Now, when I say the world, don't hear the world, that boogeyman out there. I'm not saying that. But I am saying putting the gospel first in your life. If you do that, you are setting yourself in opposition to what most people around you see as normal. We are living that in our culture, aren't we? In verse 28, Paul says this is a sign to them, the unbelievers, of their destruction, but a sign to you of your salvation. And again, most of you right now, I'd have to believe some of you at least, are thinking about like political issues, big issues. And those are not unimportant, but I don't want to talk about them right now. I want you to zoom in right now in your head, in your life, 
right now, right here, this place. I want you to think about it. I want you to remember, remember when Paul says in Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. If you say that you're not ashamed of something, that means that other people must think you have a reason to be ashamed of it. Okay? Putting the gospel first means that there are things in your life and in the world around you that the gospel is going to bump up against. Because by putting the gospel first, you're setting yourself in opposition to some things. And you may be even tempted to be ashamed. Has the love of Jesus ever cost you anything? I'll be honest, I'm a pastor. That means I'm a minister of the gospel. And I'm actually afraid to ask that question of myself. Has it? I don't know. Putting the gospel first, it's a nice catchphrase, nice Christian motto until it means really having to let your friends down. But you know what? I can't do that anymore. I'm sorry. It's a nice catchphrase until not getting that grade because you're not going to cheat. It's just a nice catchphrase until you don't get what you want because you didn't take advantage of her or you didn't give in to him. It's just a nice catchphrase until you've actually experienced inviting the scorn of your own friends or your own family just because you want to say you're a Christian. Some of us really don't have categories for that. Some of you I know do in very real ways. Putting the gospel first. Sum this first one up. Obviously the longest one. Somebody was like, dude, you only have two points. And I said, don't worry, there's three under the first one. (laughs) Let me sum it up. Putting the gospel first is standing firm in knowing who you are because of the gospel. Striving for the gospel by letting it inform and empower what you do. And having the courage to do both by knowing that there is nothing in heaven or on this earth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Put the gospel first. The second thing he says here, as we begin chapter 2, and a beautiful chapter it is, put yourself last. Put the gospel first and put yourself last. This is actually kind of like the fitting climax because the ultimate fruit of the gospel is going to be this. You're going to put yourself last. The so there in verse 1 shows that these are connected thoughts and it kind of rounds out this whole little section. Um, it's actually something you can see throughout the whole passage because what he's saying is, look, when you're united to Christ, you're united to other believers. This isn't a me thing. It's a we thing. That's what he's driving at here. You think about a couple on their wedding day. Uh, I have a pastor friend who tells couples in premarital counseling, on your wedding day, you die as an individual. And it's really true. When you say to someone, till death do us part, you're no longer a me. Everything in your life now is in reference as we. It's the same thing when we're united to Christ and united to each other in Christ. Look at the two sections, how they kind of go together. Verse 20, verses 1, chapter 1, 27 through 30, and then 2, 1 through 4. 27 through 30, it talks about a, a manner of life worthy of the gospel in relation to what's going on in your life kind of around you, outside of you. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, a manner of life worthy of the gospel in the relationships inside the church. There's kind of this church in the world distinction. But it's been there the whole time. 
Look back again. He wants us, not just you. He wants us to stand firm. He wants us to be striving together. He wants us not to be frightened by the opposition to us. And then now in verse 2 of chapter 2, look at what he says. Just complete my joy. you got to take the weight of that. Basically, Paul is saying, look, if you do this, what I'm about to say, I don't need anything else in my life. And he means it. Like He's not just saying it. If this gospel thing is real at all, let it transform your community. That's what he's telling them. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does the importance of community, this emphasis on community, the fact that the gospel naturally leads us to have to ask the question, how is our community? Is that encouraging you or discouraging? I have to believe there's some of both. The bottom line is we don't do this well. We don't. We live in a culture that doesn't do it well, that doesn't equip us well to do it. Because our culture preaches, and especially the culture of the college campus, preaches self-fulfillment above everything else. That is what our world is about. Do it for you. Right? That's what the actual, I mean, go back to the Nike ad. That's what the Nike ads are always about. Do it for you. How is that working out for us, do you think? If you've read any articles like I do, because I'm a campus minister and so I look for these things so I can quote them in sermons. But your generation, I don't know if you know this, has been labeled time and again as the most anxious, stressed, and, dis- and depressed generation in our history. Congratulations. <laughs> Some of you are like, man, I feel that. You know, and some want to attribute to, well, this is the generation that grew up with smartphones. That's not it. And actually, I found an article that backs that up. Here, there's an article in uh, the Washington Post entitled, Young Adults Are the Loneliest Generation. And one of the things it says is this. Indeed, the problem is hardly that college students spend all their time alone and on screens. It's that they spend too much of their time with peers working. Running meetings, producing plays, organizing conferences, or studying. They prioritize activities that achieve goals, not meaningful connection. And some of you are going, wow, that's my life. Yet another article backed this up. uh, It cited a study called Perfectionism is Increasing Over Time. Duh. Catch this. Today's young people, I'm not calling you young people, the study is. Today's young people are competing with each other in order to meet societal pressures to succeed. And they feel that perfectionism is necessary in order to feel safe, socially connected, and of worth. And again, there's so many of you right now going, wow, I understand my life now. This is all I want to see because we're going to open this up even more next week as we open up the rest of chapter 2, or at least the first 11 verses of it. This is what I want you to get. Look at verses 1 through 4. Everything I just cited and talked about in those articles, Paul is saying it is not supposed to be that way amongst Jesus' people at all. You're supposed to have the same love. They're supposed to be full accord, one mind, nothing done out of rivalry or conceit, in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. That'd be great, wouldn't it? I caught the movie Rudy on TV the other night, randomly, but I love football, so obviously I had to stop and watch it. Rudy Rudiger was a guy who walked on to play at the then powerhouse uh, football program, Notre Dame, like 
40 years ago. Um, he was small. I imagine, I've never seen him, but I imagine he was like my size. But it would have been like me walking on at an SEC school, okay? He had no business putting pads on and practicing with one of the most elite college football teams in the nation. But his story was inspiring. He worked his butt off. He wanted to play. His one dream out of all of it was just to dress for one game. And so at the end of the movie, the movie kind of plays it up more than what happened in real life. But suspend disbelief for a minute. Um, at the end of the movie, the last home game, the roster for the last home game is put up. And he's not on it. And he just wanted to dress one time so his family could see him in uniform run out onto that field. And as the story goes in the movie, the week of that last game, the football captain walks into the coach's office with his jersey. He lays it down on the desk and he says, I want Rudy to take my place, coach. And the coach says, you've got to be kidding me. And then one after one, player after player, they bring in, they lay their jerseys down on the desk and they say, I want him to take my place, coach. Now, I don't care if you like football or not. That's a cool story. We want to be on a team like that, do we not? We want to have a group of friends that treats their friends like that, do we not? This is why community and our relationships are so important. One, because one of the fundamental definitions of sin is selfishness. What was at the heart of what Adam and Eve did in the garden? They cared only about themselves. Second, though, do you remember Jesus' definition of righteousness? It's when they come and they ask him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And you remember what he says? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. They didn't ask him for two, but he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Now I want you to think about that. That is not a great answer for us. If Jesus had said the most important law was don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. You've heard that, right? I could have had a crack at that. I I mean, I failed that one, but I at least would have had a chance at fulfilling that one. But he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the beauty of what Paul says here. If the gospel is true, that's what he's saying. Look at verse 1. If the gospel is true, if there's any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. He's saying these are the things that are true because of the gospel. If the gospel is true, these things should be true of us. But you see what he's also saying. It's going to take work. You have to work at it. It's not easy to... To not try to one-up others. It's not easy to not seek my own glory. It's not easy to count others more significant than myself. But again, here is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus never said it was going to be easy. End with this. Y'all ever watch The Biggest Loser? It's the show that people that are really out of shape and really overweight, they all come on the show to compete to see who can get in shape the best, Right? And at the beginning of the, sh- the first show, they always line them all up in a, in a weight room or whatever. And in come the super chiseled, awesome looking trainers. And this is how, this is visually the picture that sets the tone for the whole season. The trainers are basically telling these out of shape people, follow me if you want to look like me. I'm like, all right, let's go. I want a donut. Um, I ruined the moment. Here's the thing. 
Jesus is saying the same thing, but it's not how we think it looks. Jesus says, follow me to look like me, full of love, full of grace, full of truth. And you know what he holds out to us to show us what he looks like? Holes in his hands and his feet and his side. Again, we looked at this last time, but verse 29, it's been granted for the sake of Christ, not only for us to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. But what did he say with his own life? He said it was worth it. What was worth it? He said you were worth it. And so then he encourages us that we are worth it to do this for each other. And so I just leave you with that question. What is your manner of life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that what you have called us to, you have been before us. You have done for us. You have loved us with an everlasting love. You have filled us and touched us and transformed us with and by your grace. So, Father, we do pray that love would issue from our hearts and grace would infect all that we touch. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.